Well, am I correct in this that today's the first day of spring? Am I right in that? Okay. I can feel it in my allergies. Anybody else? I was a little dizzy last night, and I asked Sarah this morning, I'm like, my, my head feels foggy. She said, so does hers. So hopefully I make sense this morning. Join me in John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And we find ourselves in verses 8 through 11. John chapter 14, verses 8 through 11, where we uh, left off last week. And it's the passage that continues Jesus' call in verse 1 that we not let our hearts be troubled, that we do not fear in a troubled time. Everything that follows here in chapter 14 are words of comfort. So words of assurance. Specifically here, these are words of assurance for Jesus' apostles as they grapple with life outside of Jesus because Jesus is leaving. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to ascend to heaven. He will not be by their side. He's giving them comfort in that. And yet we can certainly apply this to ourselves as well. As you come to chapter 14, you remember the scene. This is Thursday evening of Jesus' Passion Week. We're still in the upper room. Jesus and the 11 apostles are there, all except for Judas, who has been dismissed, dismissed to betray Jesus. We saw that at the end of chapter 13. And the mood of the room is low. It's discouragement. There's fear, there's dismay and despair. The apostles are still reeling from Jesus' words back in chapter 13, verse 21. Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. They're shocked that Jesus has predicted Peter's denial. He's the leader of the group, and yet what does Jesus say in verse 38? Truly, truly, I say to you... Peter, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. They're stunned. He's looked at all of them. And he said to them, you will all fall away. Every one of you. They're afraid. Jesus has told them, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And all of this comes on the heels of that graphic prediction that Jesus was going to die when Jesus took some bread and breaks it right in front of them and says, this is my body. It's going to be broken for you. I'll hang on the cross, battered for you. And then he takes a cup and he gives it to them and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out, sacrificed for many. Everything seems to be falling apart for these men. The world is crashing and burning right in front of them. And so it's no wonder the apostles shake in fear. They are about to lose their Lord. It's no wonder they're worried. They've left everything to follow this man. They've confessed him to be the Christ, the Son of God, but now they're told that he was leaving them. 
and leaving them in the worst possible way through betrayal by one of his own and crucifixion at the hands of the Gentiles. So back up to verse one, this is why Jesus uses that word troubled. Their hearts are troubled. It means to be stirred, to be agitated. One commentator has put it this way, like ingredients in a mixing bowl, doubt, confusion, uncertainty, and fear are being stirred around on the inside of their hearts. The potent mixture of emotions is motivated by Jesus' departure. How can he leave them? Why can't they follow him? And it's not hard to find application in this passage because these are the same questions we ask today, aren't they? The how question. How, Lord? The why question. Why, Lord? Why, Lord, are you doing what you are doing in this world? Why? Tell me. Why, Lord, are you letting evil have its way? How, Lord, how does sorrow and pain and heartache and loss fit within your love for me? How, Lord, does sin fulfill your perfect plan? Why, Lord, how, Lord? Like us, the apostles are confused. Confused by what Jesus is doing. Confused why he must leave them now, why he must die. And they're fearful, fearful of the unknown. They've always had Jesus in their midst right by their side, but now he's leaving. All of that is about to change. Jesus uses that word heart. Do not let your heart be troubled. This is their inner core. They're disturbed, shaken, fearful on the inside And so Jesus quiets their troubled hearts. And he does this by giving them divine promises. Verse one, that's what he means. Do not let your hearts be troubled. How? How is your heart calmed? It's by believing in me. If you believe everything that I'm about to tell you in the next 30 verses, some of the most wonderful promises in all of scripture, you believe those, apply those, that divine truth, your fears will be quieted. Your sorrows will be comforted. These are promises that bring stability to a shocked and questioning soul. These are the same promises that we can cling to today. There's 12 of them. We looked at the first one the last couple of weeks. Promise number one, be hopeful. This is verses two through seven. Be hopeful. Why? Because the Father's house is our future home. That's verse two. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. And then the statement, I go, Jesus speaking of the cross, I go to prepare a place for you. This is personal. I'm going for you. Personal decision. This is for your good. He must go to his cross in order to prepare heaven for his followers. So the application is be comforted because sin will not always reign. Be comforted because this fallen world is not our true and final home. 
This is how Jesus begins to calm the hearts of his apostles. He gives them an eternal perspective. No matter the sorrow of this world, Jesus says, one day every tear you have ever shed will be wiped away. And every why, Lord, or how, Lord, question you have ever asked will be answered. And sin will be defeated. And we will be with Christ completely satisfied forever. Verse 3, that where I am, there you, again personal, you may be also. Be hopeful, Jesus says. Be hopeful because the Father's house is our future home. Which leads now into the second heart-calming promise Jesus gives his apostles. And us, by extension. Promise number two, be assured. Be assured because Christ's unity with the Father guarantees our acceptance by the Father. I'll say that again. In the midst of heartache and pain, when we look around and it seems that nothing makes sense, when our world is in disarray and things seem shaky and chaos reigns, And we're puzzled by what is happening around us. When we feel helpless to change any of life's circumstances. I don't know if you've ever been there before. When that takes place, we can be assured. When we see all of that, we can be assured. Why? Because Christ's unity with the Father guarantees our acceptance by the Father. Jesus is building on his promise of a heavenly home. And now he begins to explain to his apostles why they can trust his words, his promises. Why we can bank our eternal life on him, his words, that heaven is real. And that one day all who have come to him in saving faith, believing he is the way, the truth, and the life, all who come to him in saving faith will be with him one day in glory. This is verses 8 through 11. This is a text about assurance of salvation. Our assurance of our salvation. We can think about it this way. If our heavenly home could ever be lost, if it could ever be lost, if Jesus' promise in verses two through six could ever be revoked for some reason, maybe because of some sin on our part, or some failure on our end. Or maybe because God is fickle. If the locks of the Father's house could ever be changed, or if God the Father could choose at the last minute to not welcome us into his home, if that is true, where's the hope? Where's the hope? That doesn't calm hearts, that causes anxiety. Because the truth of the matter is, if we could ever lose our salvation, guess what? We would lose our salvation. That's Thomas's fear back in verse five. He says, Lord, how do we know? How do we know the way? How can we be sure Jesus will be accepted by the Father? How can we be sure we'll be with you in glory? The apostles are fearful. 
not only afraid that they will soon lose Jesus, but now they're nervous of losing heaven, the heaven Jesus just promised them. And on a human level, this makes sense. This makes sense. Why? Because Jesus has just predicted their failure later this night. You will all fall away. Peter, you will deny me three times. The question is this, can heaven ever be lost? That's on the apostles' minds. Can Jesus' promise of a heavenly home to ever be revoked by the Father? Can sin disqualify a believer from glory? We'll start in verse 8. This is why Philip follows up Thomas's question with his own. And he said to Jesus, Lord, show us, reveal to us, give us a glimpse. Show us the Father. We want proof, Jesus. We want proof of your heavenly home promise. Proof that you can indeed bring us to your Father's house. Give us proof of that, evidence. Show us that the Father will indeed welcome us into his home. Visible proof, we want some kind of sign. And the application at this point is easy. How often are we like Philip? How often are we like Philip? Unsatisfied with God's clear promises in his word? How often do we look for assurance in other things? Just give me a sign, God, that you still love me. Just give me a sign. Just give me some peace. Give me some peace that I'm doing what is right. Just give me something, anything to confirm that your word is true. We're like Philip often. Philip's request, Lord, show us the Father. It's not a small request. (laughs) He's asking Jesus to open heaven for him. Open heaven right now, Jesus. Let us see into this heavenly home that you've promised us. Again, give us a visible display of divine glory. Prove to me, Jesus, that's Philip's statement. Prove to me, Jesus, you can be trusted. Prove that. Do for us what Yahweh did for Moses. Exodus 33, when the Lord passed in front of him. Or think of Isaiah 6, when all seems to be crashing around Israel, Yahweh, in the year of King Uzziah's death, the death of an earthly king, then shows a heavenly king, a vision, the Lord, the true king, Isaiah sees sitting on a throne, he is lofty and exalted, he sees the glorious splendor of Yahweh with the train, the hemmed edge of his robe filling the temple. Or think of Ezekiel's vision. It's a little strange. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upwards something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. From the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire. It's a vision of God, pre-incarnate Christ here. There was a radiance around him. 
As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so is the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. They're allowed to see into heaven, throne room of God. Jesus, do that for us. If you want me to believe you, if what you say is true, then give me a sneak peek into the Father's home, my future. And then Philip adds this, verse 8. It's kind of laughable, and it is enough for us. That's all you need to do. That's it. Just let me see into heaven, and then I'll believe. Then I'll have faith. Then I'll trust. All you have to do is split the skies, just a little thing like that. Philip sounds like Don Piper, not John Piper. Don Piper, there's a difference there. Don Piper wrote the book, 90 Minutes in Heaven. 90 Minutes of Heaven. Just give me a glimpse in heaven, then I'll believe. Or Todd Burpo in his book, Heaven is for Real. It's for real because I've seen it. This is not how the Christian life works. This is not how the Christian life works. Because that's not faith. That's not faith, that's sight. And according to 2 Corinthians 5, believers that are to walk live by what? We live by faith, not by sight. It's faith in God's word that drives us. Back to verse 1. That's why Jesus says, believe in God. Believe God's promises. Referring back to the Old Testament scriptures. Believe God. And faith believes in Christ's promises. It's the foundation of our hope, our assurance. Not a sign, but, but Christ's words, which is why Jesus says, believe also in me. My sheep hear my what? My voice. They follow me. My words are enough. We live by faith, not by sight. So what Jesus is going to explain here is that his promise of heaven is more than certain. Promise of heaven is more than certain. And it is more certain than any personal vision of heaven that you could ever be given. Signs do not calm a worried heart. We'll always want more. Faith in God's word, faith in God's promises, that's what calms a worried heart. Which is why Jesus does not, and you can mark it, he does not grant Philip's request. Jesus does not calm Philip's fears by giving him a glimpse of heaven. That's the question. Instead, verse 9, Jesus said to him, there's no sign, there's now words. Words are enough. Words are sufficient. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you? You've been with me for, for three years. You've heard my teaching. You've witnessed my miracles, and yet you have not come to know me? You have not come to trust me, Philip? Again, this is so true to life, isn't it? How often are we filled with Bible knowledge, filled with Bible knowledge, and yet we are still dull to the Lord's ways in our lives? 
How often are we quick to forget the glory and the majesty and the love and the faithfulness and the perfection and the goodness and the care of our Savior. We forget that and thus we doubt his sovereign care for us, his love for us. And then we ask those questions, why Lord? How can this be? How often are we slow to apply God's word to our lives and then live by them in faith? That's what's going on on in the heart of Philip here. Now here's the question. The question is this, what did Philip at this moment, what did Philip doubt? What was Philip doubting? What did he forget about Jesus? Here's the answer. He forgot how unified, how unified Jesus was with his father. That's what he forgot. He forgot how close Jesus and the father actually are, which is why Jesus now reminds Philip, finish verse nine, he reminds Philip, he who has seen me has seen the father. Jesus repeats what he told Thomas, who also doubted. But he told Thomas back in verse seven, from now on, you know him. You know the father. How? Why? Because you, by seeing me, Jesus says, you have seen him. You've seen the father. He who has seen me has seen the father. Jesus is reminding Philip of his ontological, refers to nature, his ontological equality and unity and harmony and union with the Father. You've forgotten that. You've forgotten that union. Philip, you don't need a theophany. You don't need a vision of God. You don't need a peek to my Father's house because I'm standing right in front of you. And my word, my promise of heaven is sufficient enough for you. Again, why? Because he who has seen me has seen the Father. Now let's unpack this a little bit and then we'll draw some application. First of all, this is an amazing claim. It's an amazing claim. Because the Old Testament has been clear many occasions for no man can see me, Yahweh says, no man can see me, the Father speaking, and live. It's carried over into the New Testament. First Timothy, Paul writes, no one can see the person of the Father. Why? He dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. You can't see the Father. You can't see the person of the Father. And yet Jesus' claim here is that when you gaze upon him, you actually see the Father. Not the person, but the nature. You see the same nature as the Father. When you hear the Son speak, it is as, it as, is as if the Father is speaking. In an amazing claim, he's claiming to be the true revelation of the Father. 
saying there's no ontological, again, nature difference between them. They're one in essence. One in nature, one in purpose. It should not surprise us. John mentioned this at the end of his prologue, John 1. No one can see the Father, but the Son is the one who has explained him, shown him. And note here, this inseparable unity of purpose and nature between the Father and the Son, this is one key main theme John drives home throughout this entire gospel. We're building to an application that Jesus will make. This is a main theological theme that John drives home almost on every page. The Son and the Father being united together. Think of John 5. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, it's the work of the Father, as he can do that, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. The Father and Son are equal, united in their resurrection power and purpose. They're united together in what they do, their work. John 5, 22, Jesus continues, for not even the Father judges anyone. Why? He has given all judgment to the Son. The Father and Son are equal and united in their judging authority. John 5, 23, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The Father and Son are equal and united in their worthiness to be worshipped. In fact, think of John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. We're one in purpose. We're one in nature. We're one in unity. Almost on every page. And so Jesus asks Philip, back to verse 9, Jesus asks Philip, how can you say, show us the Father? Have you forgotten who I am, Philip? Have you forgotten who I am, the unity that I have with my Father? Every time we doubt our Lord, every time, every time we question his ways, every time we disbelieve his promises in the midst of troubling times, the troubled heart, we forget who he is. We forget his deity. That's why hope wavers. Why is your hope wavering, Philip? Why are my words of a glorious future not good enough for you? Are you doubting my promises? Are you doubting my ability to bring you to my father's home? Remember who I am. Go back to the basics. Remember who I am. Remember my deity. Remember that when I speak, Philip, I only speak that which is true. I'm one with the Father. Remember my divine sovereignty, that I have the power to do what I say. Remember my divine faithfulness. When I promise something, I will fulfill it. Remember who I am. 
But now notice verse 10. Because Jesus is going to build, actually take this to a deeper level. This unity. Jesus then gives a picture of just how unified he and the Father are. Verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So this is not just unity anymore. This is now mutual indwelling. This is mutual indwelling. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. One commentator writes this. Because of the way that each is in the other, the Father in the Son and the Son in the Father, each surrounds the other while also holding the other within himself. So you can see where words cannot do this justice. So we're creatures. We're talking about a Trinitarian eternal God. This is probably why the church throughout the years has also not just used words, but symbols. Symbols and pictures to describe this unified relationship between Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Words can only go so far. So maybe a picture or a few pictures will help. Sometimes we see this unity with rings. We'll see this symbol often, the union between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each ring representing a distinct person. And yet each ring united, each ring interlocked. So much so that if you remove one ring, all the rings fall apart. Mutual indwelling. If you don't like rings, then how about triangles or spirals? Same idea. Three interlocking triangles, three united spirals. And by the way, as a side note here, if anyone ever asks you what your favorite shape is as a believer... There's only one answer. It is the triangle. It's the triangle because of the Trinity shield, right? This is, next slide, this is our favorite shape, the triangle, if anybody ever asks. Again, it's picturing this mutual indwelling, this unity. Each member of the Trinity sharing the same nature as God, united in nature, interlocked. And yet each member is still a distinct person. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. Distinct yet united. Unable to be separated. Each interlocked with each other. So whatever the language that is used, whatever the symbol, the point Jesus is making is that the Father and the Son cannot be separated. They're fully interlocked inseparably linked, wholly intertwined in relationship and nature and purpose. I am in the Father, verse 10. I am in the Father, meshed, knitted, and the Father is in me, locked and linked. So at this point, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. This is heady stuff. Right? This is theology. I didn't come for theology this morning. 
You might even be wondering, why is Jesus talking about all of this Trinitarian, mutual, indwelling things with Philip, an ordinary man from Bethsaida? It's an ordinary man. You might think this is for the scholar, not the everyday Christian. You might even even be asking, how in the world does Christ's eternal, mutual, indwelling relationship with his Father bring me calmness to a troubled heart now? How does this work? This is for the head. This is not for the heart. Well, understand, the greatest application is based on the greatest theology. Theology is applicational, always. Let's see this. Go back to the question in verse 10. See just how applicational this is. Verse 10. Again, the question, do you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The question actually expects a yes answer. I know you believe this. That's what Jesus is saying. I know you believe this. So Jesus is not questioning whether or not Philip and the rest of the apostles believed this truth. They did. But they believed it somewhat only intellectually. The point of Jesus' question, do you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The point of that question is that though they did believe this, they did believe Christ's deity and unity with the Father. They believed it in theory. But they were not applying it to their own situation at this moment. Again, theology is always practical. The greatest applications in life are based on the grandest theological truths. Which is why Jesus now draws the application from all of the theology. Verse 10, the words that I say to you, what words? The words that I say to you, what words? The words he just said and promised in verses two through six. The promise of his father's heavenly home. The same promise all who are in Christ can cling to now. We can cling to that home when sorrow mounts and chaos rises. The promise that all who come to Christ in saving faith, though they will indeed fall into sin, just like the apostles will do later this night, and though they will cave into temptation, like Peter will do, He says those words in verses two through six, that promise, that promise is for you guaranteed. It is for you guaranteed. The words, finish it, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. These are not just my words to you. Christ promises this, if you are his, if you have come to him in faith, if you have believed verse six, He is the way, the truth, and the life. Despite your failures, and despite your pain, and despite your doubts, and despite your fears, one day, one day, your faith will be turned into sight. And the Father's house, that will be yours. Guaranteed. Not 
because of your goodness and not because of your obedience and not because you are strong enough to hold on to your salvation. That's not the reason. No, our eternity is secure because of the inseparable unity between the Father and the Son. Because verse 10, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. I do not speak from only myself. My promise of heaven for you is the Father's promise of heaven for you. My promise is the Father's promise. When I speak, the Father speaks. I will not promise anything the Father will not do. This is the application of that mutual indwelling the Father between the Father and the Son. Because I am in the Father and the Father is in me, what I promise you, the Father promises you. This, yes, is a promise from the Son. This is also a promise to us from the Father. The one who owns the house. The one who will open the door. And I love this. Finish verse 10. The Father abiding, remaining in me. Another image of this mutual indwelling, this unity, this closeness. The Father abiding in me does his works. That is to say, not only do my promises, my words of a heavenly home carry with them the weight of God the Father, but my works also carry with them the weight of God the Father. When I speak, the Father speaks. When I promise, the Father promises. And now when I work, the Father works. That's how united we are. And so connect this back to verse three. When I come again and receive you to myself and bring you to my Father's house, that where I am there you may be also when I one day do the work of escorting you to glory. When I do the work of bringing you to the front door of my Father's house, that will not only be me escorting you to heaven, but that will also be the work of the Father bringing you to himself. That's how united we are. And that's how secure your eternity is. Questions often asked, how eternally secure are we? How eternally secure? We are as secure in Christ. We are as secure as the mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son. As interlinked as they are is how secure Christ's promise of heaven is for us. And they can't be separated. Who can separate us from the love of God? Answer is nothing, no one. Here, Philip asks for a vision of heaven to ease his fears, but Jesus gives him something better. He gives him theology. He gives him a promise based upon the unbreakable eternal union and bond between himself and his father. Why can our heavenly home never be lost and never forfeited or revoked? 
Why can we in troubled times rest on the promise that the Father will always, always open the door to his house for all who come to him through faith in his Son? How can we rest in that, be assured of that? How can we find hope in a hopeless world and assurance in chaotic times? Because the security of our salvation is a unified effort, a unified effort between the Father and the Son. We have a Trinitarian security, a Trinitarian security, which is why Jesus calls his apostles. Notice verse 11. He says, believe. Don't look for a sign. Believe my words. And now this is in the plural. He was speaking to Philip, but now it's broadened. All of the 11 here. Believe me. Rest your security on me, on my words, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. There's our assurance. Repeat it again. Let this mutual indwelling calm your troubled hearts and find comfort. Find comfort and safety and refuge. Jesus says, in my union with my Father, because it means your guaranteed entrance into glory. The Father will never reject any one Christ brings to himself. He'll never reject any who Christ brings. The Father will always open the door of his house for those who come to him through faith in his Son. And so as the chaos and uncertainty of our world only increases, and the sorrow of the day only deepens, we who belong to Christ through faith, back to verse 1, we do not need to let our hearts be troubled. Why? Because our hope, Colossians 1, our hope, our assurance, our future, our home is laid up for us in heaven. 1 Peter 1, we have an inheritance reserved by both the Father and the Son, an inheritance reserved in heaven for us. What Christ promises, he will deliver. Alistair Begg has put it this way. Sustained by such a doctrine, we can enjoy security even on earth. Not the high and glorious security that makes us free from every slip, but that holy security that comes from the sure promise of Jesus that none who believe in him will ever perish, but will be with him where he is. Believer, reflect often and joyfully on this doctrine and honor the faithfulness of God by a holy confidence in him. Oh, Christian, be hopeful. Let's take that one step further. Be the most hopeful because the Father's house is our future home. And be assured, because Christ's unity with the Father guarantees our acceptance by the Father. 
Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we have a Savior who is fully glorious and completely trustworthy. A Savior who is sovereign and caring and good. We thank you that nothing can separate us, nothing can separate us from the love Christ has for us. How could that be? That would be a violation of the Trinity. So let us rest our assurance, not in our works or in our obedience. Let us rest our assurance on you, on your love for us, on your faithfulness to your own words. Let us not doubt your words, but give us the faith to believe you, Father, and to believe the promises of Christ. Make us hopeful, Lord. It's what our world needs. Make us hopeful. So all glory goes to you. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.